1: This is Susan Robb for Children's and Family Literature at New Books Network. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Carol Purcell, who is a professor of history at Australian National University and professor emeritus of history at Case Western Reserve. His book is called From Playgrounds to PlayStation. It's published by Johns Hopkins University Press. And it's an interesting book that talks very broadly about the history of play in many forms. So, first of all, um, Dr. Purcell, thank you for joining me.
0: Thanks for inviting me.
1: I wanted to ask you, uh, when when I started reading this, it was kind of fun to have you start with the history of the playground and then go on and talk about play in a lot of different areas. So team sports and um, some of the different kinds of hobbies that people have had over uh, many, many years. So when you first took a look at this whole topic, um, first, what got you interested in writing about this? And how did you decide on the timeframe that you wanted to cover?
0: I've been interested in toys, um history of toys for many years and I, I wrote something, you know, back in the seventies about it. Uh and it was always in the back of my mind that this was a bigger bigger topic than than what I was able to do in an article. And then I sat in with a group in the nineties that was kind of kicking around the idea of an encyclopedia of the history of technology. And one of the things that we decided, it never happened, but but, um, one of the things that we immediately decided is that we didn't want to go alphabetically through devices, you know, from the airplane to the Zeppelin, (laughs) that we wanted to uh, sort of cluster them and have, um, have groups of essays around... The way technology was used, and uh, everybody immediately said, "Well, you know, there's agriculture, there's manufacture, there's transportation, there's communications, uh, there's uh, domestic technology." Blah, blah, blah. And I thought, bingo! You know, there's play. Play is a category that um, it, it's it's important. I mean, it's tre- tremendously important. It's ubiquitous, and it's kind of fun appropriately because um it it's sort of counterintuitive, you know. Um, so um uh, I suggested that and years later my editor at Johns Hopkins got back and said, You remember that idea? Why don't you do it? And I thought, Okay, I'll do it. So that's where I got started and of course play has takes so many different forms throughout the lifespan, from when we're babies right on till we die, we play, and um, the play changes appropriately. Partly with our age, partly with what else is going on in the world. Um, so I thought that I would <laughs> would have to somehow get this under a little bit of control. Some of my reviewers have said um. It's not sufficiently under control it's um you know too much, but um I thought that I would um uh, pick venues of play and uh deal with them. I suppose there you know there are others I might have and and heaven knows in each of the categories, like playgrounds or like toys, there are a lot of things I could talk about. Uh, and didn't, uh, but that—that's kind of the way I decided to to deal with it. You know, historians are always faced with uh, taking a a theme and running through time, and that gives a certain coherence and a narrative that is meaningful. But you lose track of the context. You're not talking about everything else that's happening in 1850. You're talking about this one thing that your book is about. Uh, The other way is to, you know, do a book about 1850 in which you talk about everything that was happening. But then you miss out on the, you know, what came before and what flowed out of that. So neither is perfect but I just decided to take each of these venues and then run them through from uh some reasonable beginning point. As historians were adept at finding precursors, so it's you know that was no problem. Um, and then just I tried to carry things up to the present because it's still all happening.
1: Yeah, now I wanna ask you too, I mean on the playgrounds what what struck me was a, a couple different things about it. One was about how it tied in with um, urban development and how and um, how people were using space on one hand, but then also uh, it it tied in with trying to uh, how people felt about children at the time and what they were supposed to be doing and whatnot. So I just thought as a social thing it was really interesting.
0: Yeah, and you know it's um once you become sensitized to it you realize it's all over. It's it's not every day in the newspapers but it's a it's a burning issue still. Um uh, there's a lot of concern um in some cities, for example, where uh, populations going up have to expand the schools, they're tending to put classrooms, sometimes mobile classrooms, on what used to be playground. Backyards are shrinking. Um, you know, where where do kids play anymore? You know, the backyard isn't big enough. The school the, the um, They're afraid of getting sued. They've taken out some of the equipment. Uh, There maybe isn't room anymore. Um, And, you know, I used to roam out into the countryside from my little town, uh, but that's not possible for most kids anymore. So it's, these things are still being talked about and then wrestled with, Uh, so it's, um, it's interesting to go back to the origins of the playground movement and see that uh, that there were you know what the problems were how those problems changed through times and what the solutions were and what we've done is to build up a sort of um a, a a menu of solutions all of which are still available uh but um well let let me let me say parenthetically that one of the important stories in the origin was that city streets were demonstrably unsafe for children's play, and that they should have dedicated play places which were safe. And ironically, by the time you got to the end of the last century, playgrounds themselves were considered unsafe. Right. And you know, Chicago would get sued when some kid fell off the teeter totter or something and, you know, paying out $10 million. And um, they said, you know, this can't go on. So they take out the teeter totters. Uh, it's, you know, we live in a risk adverse uh, society and um, you know, playgrounds are not immune from accident.
1: Right. And, you know, it's interesting. It reminds me of a story I once was told where um, a, a colleague was saying that she had neighbors on either side who had kids around the same age. But one of the moms didn't want the children, her children crossing this other person's lawn to get to their friends just because it seemed like well they shouldn't be unescorted where you know i have the memories like you have about you just left at a certain time in the day and you came back because it was time for dinner or whatever and yeah. you know we have an an awful lot of notion that you really can and should be controlling children's movement far more than was probably so in a lot of times in places in the past
0: yeah And ironically, I read a statement which was, you know, tinged with irony, but actually is true, and that is, you know, you're in greater danger from your father than some stranger down the street. You know, it's um, when you look at the statistics, and not a lot of kids are grabbed off the street, actually.
1: Right. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And, you know, one of the things I thought in, in looking at the book, And, and as I went through it, um, that what there was a real mix between what we might think of as maybe that kind of category, like casual play, um, and then things like hobbies, which in some ways for people, you know, you think of ham radio and some of the other things became quite serious play. I was thinking of even things like elaborate model building, which was, you know, something I remember. You know, from my dad growing up, him doing something like that. And it it could be, you know, I I remember one thing he made that took six months of real, you know, serious work. And then you have things Mm -hmm. like team play and collaborative play, which gets into serious professional activities. Like you talk about extreme sports and all that. So it's interesting. It was a it's an interesting, you know, can um collection of of things
0: yeah yeah it's it, it's true that play you know play continues um and speaking of models uh, i had an older brother who who died not too long ago in his early 90s uh and the last time i saw him he took me out in the garage and showed me his model trains, you know, oh, and he yeah. had these elaborate little, you know, he just loved it. Just loved it right up to, you know, in his 90s, he's out there playing in the garage with his trains. And it's perfectly natural. It's it's not my thing, but uh, but it was his and uh, he enjoyed it. And I don't think it's uncommon.
1: I, I remember that. That was Walt Disney's thing, too, except his were people-sized bottle trains right mm. that he collected those do you know those stories about um that apparently he had that on his property but yeah you know uh, um people come at that that particular hobby in a in a very serious way and uh, yeah
0: i that we live about a about a block from the um Canberra train station, which is a sweet little. <laughs> the train only goes to Sydney. It's it's very <laughs> odd for a national capital, but uh, um, the, uh, the train station, part of the grounds of the train station, has been taken over by the uh, look the um, railroad history society, and it's these retired railroaders who are. Saving and restoring and showing off a couple of old locomotives and, you know, some passenger cars. And on weekends, they're very busy and we hear them blowing their steam horns and, you know, they're really, really into
1: it. Now, one of the things you talked about too was how the the concept of what toys were made to do, and and the example one of them was about Legos and how there were issues with Legos because plastic was, you know, seen to be not not very good. And so, so tell me some about that.
0: Legos is a a fascinating uh, toy. I mean it was not around when I was a kid. And I must say this toy chapter is, um, is I'll confess a lot to do with the things I had, you know, like tinker toys and Lincoln logs. Mm -hmm. Um, But I didn't have Legos. I mean, there were no Legos, you know, and they came along in time for my kids who had Legos and what I most remember is stepping on the barefoot, you know, <laughs> right. little pieces that they had left around. Um, but it's, it's this interesting, uh, Danish company that took advantage of ways to, to, um, fabricate plastic and to shape plastic. Um, it had a precursor and there was some crankiness about who really invented it and so forth. But, you know, it was a, it was a wonderful little construction toy. And then it just, I think my grandchildren now have these, get these Lego things, you know, that are not just, uh, identical pieces, but, you know, I don't know what they are quite, but, um, and it's, you know, they're games, and they're computerized, and there's a Lego theme park, and it's just, it's uh, colonized, <laughs> you know, not just the toy world, but but related venues for play and entertainment. It's a fascinating uh, story. Yeah. And, and, and of course, it's, you know, there, there are people who, speaking of hobbies, there are people who do these quite large sculptures, you know, there aren't exhibits of Lego things. Right. In my, um, my laptop, uh, the windows thing that comes up on the screen changes every once in a while. And the one just before what I have now, which is an icy outdoor scene was this weird kind of Lego city. You know that looked like some millennials uh, I don't know <laughs> um, fascination it it, it it yeah
1: yeah it's i mean one of the things with that was it did seem to go from being a toy where you were supposed to imagine what it could be to things that were quite prescribed i mean, I remember buying um sets for Uh, for a friend's son who was really into it. And it, you know, it definitely was, you know, here's what we're going to build with this thing. So it's interesting how we perceive play and how, how much we feel like, you know, there's a right outcome. That's, that's its own component of play, huh?
0: Yeah. And that, you know, that's a, a, a wonderful example of a larger problem with, the way modernity manipulates play um, how children are you know the worry is that that increasingly children are um, uh, are being uh, channeled into just certain things, doing you know whatever the corporation thinks they can make money out of rather than giving the kids stuff you see it in playgrounds you know there there was this attempt um, after world war ii to in europe to create what they called adventure playgrounds in which kids were just allowed to um, use you know broken bits of wood and you know old bricks and worn out tires and uh do everything including building bonfires and you know and the kids just apparently adored these things cuz they just you know they it let their imaginations go wild um and it's so much different from from this kind of prescribed you know like a color book you know this is a cow and cows aren't blue you know, you have to color it in and stay inside the lines. And um, this kind of prescribed thing. And one of the things about play that's always said is that it's um, formative. <laughs> you know, it really, it it shapes us. And, um, and there's this worry that this kind of conformity is shaping us into, you know, followers. Um, yeah, there's Smoothing out, you know, into a bland culture.
1: Right. So that we feel like there's a right answer to play. You're supposed to come out a certain way. Yeah. There, I, I remember um, hearing the um, author-illustrator Tommy DePala say one time that he just remembers spending a lot of time staring up at clouds and got some of his best ideas there But then, you know, other times it would be considered just, you know, not how you'd be spending your time as, you know, if you wanted to become an artist, that there are other ways to do it. And yet for him, that was, you know, very much what it was about.
0: Mm -hmm. There's one of the uh, things I mentioned in the playground at the beginning of the playground. Well, no, it's, it's, um, the beginning of the sports chapter is, uh, george burns talking about when he was a child in new york city playing baseball in the streets oh yeah and, yeah. and appropriating the streetscape for the game i think that he says that you know home base was a sewer lid and a, there was a lamp pole or something that was first base and so forth and um this, this kids appropriating the street and the street activity for their play may have been dangerous, but it was tremendously inventive. Um, and then playgrounds tended to shut that down. You get you got your swing, and you know that about all you can do in there is swing. Um, but it, in a strange way, this was there was a recapitulation of this appropriation of the cityscape with skateboards. Oh, yeah. You you know, we're we're kids with skateboards now. Don't just go up and down the sidewalk, but you know, they, they can hop it, hop curbs is nothing, but they can hop up onto a bench and then, you know, over a wall. And so that (laughs) the city authorities are constantly putting bumps in the walls, you know, so that skateboarders can't use and it signs up don't skateboard on this um, but of course kids do they skateboard on on everything and they just take the city and and re-engineer it in a sense for their own purposes and it's you know it's annoying <laughs> uh, for those of us who are older but it's it's really in this spirit of play.
1: And one of the things it related to that the whole area was, I thought it was really interesting when you talked about surfing and you talked about that being such an ancient sport and that um it had both a big cultural impact on music and all kinds of other things, but then that it also spawned a lot of other sports. One of the more recent passions was, you know, all about skateboards
0: right it's it's um i mean when you think of the word board and think of of, um sort of more recent sports you know snowboard and uh, so forth um skateboard uh it really is true and i just have to be a little bit careful and maybe i should have been more careful i don't know but uh it it seems to me that it's i had this picture of of you know life coming up out of the ocean and developing legs and moving you know um because the surfboards came out of the water in a sense and got developed wheels became skateboards and then they took the wheels off and made snowboards um it's a it's a wonderful evolution and it 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 happened over a very few years, although I must say, when I was a kid, uh, I, I mentioned this, I don't mention myself, but <laughs> uh, in the 30s, um, we made scooters ourselves, took a part, a pair of skates, put half at the front of a two-by-four and half on the back, and then nailed uh, a fruit crate mm. up on yep. edge at the yep. front. Mm-hmm. And put a board across it for um, handlebars, and then used it as as a scooter. And you know if you take that uh, that fruit box off, you've got a skateboard essentially. Mm-hmm. We didn't realize it, and you know it's not clear how that actually might have worked into the origins of the skateboard we do think that the skateboard began in uh southern california uh as a way for for young surfers to um kind of surf up on land when when the surf was not up sure. in the water yeah. um and when you watch them in a bowl uh skateboarding in a bowl it really has you know, the surfing moves are so obvious, you know. Yeah, that's. It's kind of a yeah. fun, fun connection.
1: Yeah, that's. I mean, that is such an interesting sport to watch. And it ties in with another thing you talk about, which is extreme sports.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, it's. And, you know, once again, the definitions are so flexible in. Um, in all of this, but I was just this morning, I was online reading the guardian and bah, here's an article, police hunting train surfer calling himself the silver shadow There's a photograph of the guy. Um, and it turns out in the North of England, the silver shadow, uh, is, uh, has been filmed traveling on top of a train, moving up to a hundred miles an hour. And this train surfing is something that's been going on for years. And I was collecting material on it and meant to put it in this chapter. And I thought, Oh, I've got so many things now. Um, you know, I just, I don't want to add yet another uh, category, but um uh, you know, it's it's happening. It's all around us, and they're you know it, the danger is a part of the fun. Um, I don't find it all terribly attractive myself, but it, <laughs> and it's 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 heavily masculinist, and it's very class. It it began very upper class. Um, extreme sports as such. Uh, it, origins in England. It was, you know, a bunch of Oxford boys, and they would go, you know, they'd go up and uh, slide, they'd all slide to Mount Kilimanjaro and slide down on an ironing board or something. I mean, you know, it it took money and leisure. And um, I mentioned that, you know, one of the early founders, you know, Bungee jumped off one of the famous historic bridges in England, dressed in a tuxedo and drinking champagne. And um, you know, it's kind of cute, but it's I find it put offish, and it's it's um, ironically, you know, extreme sports have this kind of outlaw image of you know disaffected youth in your face. And it turns out that it's, you know, it's heavily corporatized and uh, uh, shaped by um, television, especially big TV uh, channels.
1: Now, one of the things, I mean, you talk about that and the corporatization, there's all the, you know, all the gear and the you know, um, labeling sports and play has been a whole big thing. Another thing, though, that you talk about, is gender and age and how that has a big impact um, on who's drawn to a given sport or a game. Are there particular times um, or circumstances when play has been more egalitarian?
0: Well, you know, in, in the first place, play is always more egalitarian than the ideology would lead you to believe. You know, when I used to lecture on the history of technology university, I'd talk about a rector set and, you know, and some young woman would raise her hand and say, I played with an ele- rector set. And I'd always ask her, was it yours? I know it was her brother's. But, but there was this sort of, um, you know, fighting against the, a uh, uh, Against the norm and and gender expectations, and kids are punished for that, you know and, um, you know that girls probably are not actually punished for playing with the sets, but you know boys are very heavily discouraged from being too feminine they're doing too feminine things, you know playing with dolls, for example, will get you in big trouble as a little boy um whether there was ever a time I don't know I kind of doubt it 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 seems to me that um that you know there are all sorts of examples going back <laughs> a long time of um of this getting kids to um to do appropriate adult activities and as a matter of fact now that you mention it um there was a time when kids were little inconveniences and put to work as soon as possible i don't mean set down into the mines or into the mills necessarily but um given chores you know had everybody had to be helpful Uh, On the farm, or or wherever, and it it was just part of the economic necessity of the family unit. So that um, in in those circumstances, I reckon that there was um, very little equality of play. That it, uh, you know, as soon as you could do anything useful, you were given an appropriate task. And it wasn't thought of as play, you know. It was may have just been, you know, bringing in the geese or something, but uh, picking lint. There's, I don't know what, but um, I think kids were just funneled right into work so Which, quickly.
1: Yeah, and you talk- play
0: hardly was an issue. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, you talked about some of that too when you were talking about Erector sets and things like that, and just how the intent. um was for people sort of to use it in training to to grow up and have sort of little
0: adult skills yeah yeah exactly exactly a lot of um a, a surprising number of scientists are recorded as um crediting erector sets with um uh awakening their interest and encouraging their interest in science. And uh, um, a very good historian of technology uh, who was trained and spent his whole career, his regular career as an aeronautical engineer, told me one time that he made model airplanes and that's how he got interested. Well, so did I. But it turns out that I was trying to follow the directions well enough that the darn thing would actually fly. I was never terribly successful, but that was easy for him. And as a kid, he was modifying <laughs> the, the plans for the plane and making a plane with you know three wings or you know you know putting them back in the middle of the body instead of up the front or or whatever. That's so right. that. You know, I mean, the the ones that work like that are the stories you hear. The ones that, you know, I played with model airplanes and never became a pilot or an engineer. You don't hear those stories, so it's hard to tell. You know how common this really is.
1: Yeah, that's all. The, all your innovators in the book, all innovating both in business and in science, moving all this stuff along. Mm. Now, let me ask you, too. Um, we're obviously at a stage where the game industry is kind of a, having this extraordinary period where, you know, it's, it's what, bigger than the film industry? It's, it's crazy, huge, and growing so rapidly. Um, so with that, um, it, do you have, I mean, how do you think that came along? I mean, because games have been around forever and ever. There's long, long history of the game industry. But what do you think is happening now that's made this the kind of business that it is?
0: Do you, do you mean video games? Are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's. That's hard for me because, um, once again, you know I think that this whole thing is kind of age specific. I suspect—I have no evidence for this—but I suspect that that um, after a certain age, you don't become fascinated with gaming and and become fanatical about it i think that if you if you start young that can happen and and you can keep going well after it's you know you're embarrassingly old to be wasting your time on this kind of thing but um i don't think old people pick it up and and you know get trapped in it um where was i going with that yeah well Uh,
1: well, I was thinking too. I mean, part of it is—it's interesting because it's a time of such technology that even that industry is changing so quickly. What they're, what people are capable of doing is changing at sort of warp speed. It seems too.
0: Um, you know, the one thing that doesn't get talked about that I've sometimes wondered—you um, know—we played games when I was a kid, but they were mostly board games, you know, endless summer monopoly games where we loaned each other money and, you know, they just went on for days, but you, you had to have somebody, you know, you had to have a cousin who was visiting or, you know, a friend who would, but I take it with these games, although you might play with people, you don't have to have them around. They're always out there in the ether somewhere. Uh, It's, it's something you can do by yourself, um, you know, sit in your bedroom and, and just play these things. Um, my kids missed that. I did. My grandchildren have not been allowed to do it. It's a, it's sort of a, I guess some sort of luddism is in our genes, but, um, I just I just don't see enough of it to have a feeling for for the dynamics of it. I mean, what in the world is it all about? Um, yeah, you know, I I worry sometimes that the misogyny and the violence of it has this particular attraction. You sh- you can such shut yourself in the bedroom, you're by yourself, and you can. Um, indulge in these really unattractive preoccupations you know I, I don't know I mean that's silly that's yeah. a gamer would would crucify me for that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually yeah. I have a son who's uh, who's in the game industry and it's been interesting to watch some of that. He hasn't gone so much into the violent game ones but actually into into the history games. And, but again, you know, the, the technology is changing so quickly and the, um, and, and the interaction. And one of the things you bring up that I remember he and I have talked about too is that whole issue and sort of going back to what you said before about, you know, male, female roles and where women have had to really stake their ground in that industry in the past. Cause there have been, you know, issues in the past.
0: Yeah, 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 and it could, the, you know, it, it's so obvious in video games, and you get so, you read so much about it, but but it's um it's just all over, you know. It's, as I say in my chapter on hobbies, uh, part of the attraction of ham radio operation or building a hi-fi set from a kit or something like this, uh, these were male dominated activities that demanded a certain private space in the house. So you had your, you know, in Australia, they call them sheds. Men have sheds. Uh, and it's often literally a shed. They're part of the garage, you know, where you can go out and you probably have a bottle of something hidden in there <laughs> and maybe some improper magazines. And, uh, you know, you, uh, you do men things out there and make stuff and the the you know traditionally from the nineteenth century, the home was female space it was domestic space, and um, men with hobbies in the 20th century tended to take over a part of that
1: so one of the things I did want to um, ask you when you were talking about Nintendo. Um, I was surprised to learn that that company started as a card game way back in the late 1800s. And I wondered, have when you were looking at the arc of of companies, did you find many companies that lasted a very long time?
0: There are there are some, yeah, um, and but often you have to track them through um, buyouts and mergers and spin-offs and that sort of thing and name changes but as the as the technology changed you know from um pinball machines for example to um, to video games video arcades and so forth it, you'll find some companies were you know fairly nimble in uh in um, just just moving into adapting and and so forth, and it was you know fairly um, fairly straightforward with um, with pinball machines, and of course it it goes not only into uh, uh, video arcades uh, initially, but also into um, gambling or gaming as they like to call it um where you know these you know poker machines for example with all of their lights and graphics and um sounds and everything uh you know are just um essentially technological upgrades and then then they have more sophisticated add-ons like uh you know making it easy to play again and so forth but, but, yes, you do get you do get a few companies that just last and last and last.
1: Now, one of the things that uh, just in in closing, one of the things you quote toward the end of the book, you were saying, you're quoting a game designer saying, uh, games are not just art. they're the most revolutionary form of art the world has ever known about. And then you have a a quote from the late Roger Ebert saying, The games are not an art; it doesn't count in that way because um, the player changes what it is. So, what did you think about that? Did you come down on either side of that?
0: (laughs) No, that's really um, that's really a a quagmire. Um, I mean, there's this whole whole uh, notion that that readers in fact change books uh that they you know that in the act of reading you are in some sense reimagining re- rewriting the book as it were so that argument is not specific to to gaming is it art oh my gosh um i mean art's a bit in the eye of the beholder isn't it i I tend to be a traditionalist, you know, and say if it's if it's not high art, then it's uh popular art right. or it's decorative art uh, you know these are all ideological positions that uh that we adopt, and i don't you know i don't certainly pretend that my choices are better than someone else's. I think they are, but I know that (laughs) not everyone would agree.
1: (laughs) So let me ask you, too, and and a last question on all this. So in looking at all of this, I mean, do you have – did you have thoughts about where you might guess uh, play-in games might be going or – Uh, You know, I didn't know if you saw sort of up and down patterns or things like that, or, and, you know, are there places that you'd love to see it go?
0: Um, Well, I certainly hope that we can avoid too much prescribed play. Um, And prescribed play goes way, way back, and it's always been a problem, you know I mean? how much do you guide the kids and how much do you just let them go. Um, and, you know, you can err in both directions and I think we ha- have to continue to think about that quite specifically uh, and try to make good decisions. But I guess my, um, my overall impression is how consistent, uh, how Actually, in a funny way, conservative play is that you know how it. I guess because it's so fundamental to life, and I don't mean just humans. I mean, you know, I I saw once on a hike in California uh, two two little um, uh, bobcat uh, cubs playing kittens. I guess. Uh, playing, you know, I mean, animals seem to play. I know that we tend to read human meaning into what we see animals do, but they sure as heck look like they were playing. I, and, you know, it was probably, you know, one could argue that it may well have been, um, you know, sort of practice for when they do the same thing, but they're not playing anymore. They really mean it. Um, But it's just so fundamental that uh, it seems, in a way, kind of unchanging. And I I take a certain comfort from that. You know, I see in my grandchildren, you know, the the way they like to do this and that and the other thing. And I think, yeah, I remember that. You know, it's, um, it's, I, I find it encouraging.
1: So, sort of that intrepid or or imaginative part of play pushes its way through. Maybe still. The yeah, pardon. Uh, I said that maybe the uh, that may, that imaginative or that that you know free form part of play pushes its way through.
0: Yeah, I think that that um, you know because it is so fundamental, it's recognizable. You know the, the 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 video game you happen to be playing at the moment is maybe not recognizable, but you know playing is itself.
1: Well, then uh, let me remind people that um, if they want to find out more about the book, they can look at um, Johns Hopkins University Press, which is uh, Books dot press. Uh, @.jhu.edu um any place else people should know to look for any additional information on your work or uh the book
0: um, oh uh, I, I suppose i'm out there in the google but uh, uh, no i don't have a, any contact
1: okay But they can look for it online, and I know Amazon and other places carry it as well. Um, So let me, um, well, thank you for uh, talking with me. It's really been a pleasure and, um, and a really interesting topic that I think everybody can relate to in a lot of different ways.
0: Well, thanks, Susan. I really enjoyed it.